What happens when you get a false, unfair, negative online review and you sue for business disparagement or defamation but fail to send the request for retraction or correction under the Defamation Mitigation Act? Well, the Texas Supreme Court just answered that question, and I'll be discussing it on this episode of It's the Keith Law PLLC Podcast, and I'm Jason Keith, attorney in Houston, Texas. Keith Law is a Texas-based law firm that helps businesses protect and enhance their competitive advantages by assisting with trademark issues and identifying and protecting trade secrets. The firm's goal is to help businesses prevent and address business problems, and I hope this podcast will do the same. Back in episode six, I covered how a business can handle negative online reviews that are false. During that episode, I discussed the Texas Defamation Mitigation Act. I'll refer to the Defamation Mitigation Act as the DMA, and I discussed its requirement that the defamed business or person send a demand for retraction or correction to the accused defamer. In that episode, I mentioned that there was some uncertainty about the effect of failure to send the demand. Whether it would prevent the lawsuit from concluding, would the lawsuit be dismissed, or would it only prevent a plaintiff from recovering exemplary, also known as punitive, damages? This month, the Texas Supreme Court issued its opinion in Hogan v. Zoani, aiming to answer this question. Following the issuance of this opinion by the Texas Supreme Court, it appears that dismissal of the lawsuit is generally off the table. But, as I'll discuss later in the episode, based on the way the justices' votes came out, there may remain some degree of uncertainty as to the stability of the law when it comes to the effect of failing to send a timely DMA demand. Either way, a timely and comprehensive demand remains the best practice for anyone alleging defamation. Keep in mind that the statutory deadlines for what constitutes a timely demand under the DMA can be very short, so it's important not to delay. First, I'll cover the factual background of the lawsuit that led to this Supreme Court opinion. Then I'll talk about the procedural background, meaning what happened in the courts below the Texas Supreme Court. Then I'll get into the Texas Supreme Court's opinion. And then I'll discuss how the votes came out in the Texas Supreme Court and the effect of those votes on the stability of the law going forward. First, the factual background. The plaintiff's name is Hogan. He's a pastor who divorced his wife in 2011. Hogan's ex-wife, Zoani, is the defendant because after the divorce, she, quote, published a litany of statements online to the police and to his church leadership stating he is a pedophile, pervert, and patron of child pornography. Close quote. In a 2014 letter, he demanded that she cease and desist the defamation of his character and reputation. After sending the letter, he sued, asserting causes of action for defamation, invasion of privacy, malicious prosecution, abuse of child protective services process, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. In the lawsuit, Hogan was seeking actual and exemplary damages. That's the factual background of the dispute. Now I'll move into the procedural background. That means what happened in the courts before it got to the Texas Supreme Court. So the divorce was in 2011. The lawsuit and the letter were in 2014. Two years later, in 2016, 10 days before trial, Hogan amended his lawsuit to add nine newly discovered defamatory statements made more than a year earlier. 
Although the defendant, Zawani, never alleged a limitations defense, for example, statute of limitation or latches. I've discussed latches in detail in an earlier episode of this podcast. On the first day of the trial, the defendant filed a motion for directed verdict as to the nine statements newly added in the amended lawsuit arguing that Plaintiff Hogan failed to comply with the DMA by failing to provide a timely demand for correction or retraction as to the newly added statements. She was essentially saying that these newly added statements must be dismissed from the lawsuit for failing to comply with the DMA. The court asked the defendant's lawyer, do you want me to abate the lawsuit? The defendant's lawyer said no, declined the court's offer to abate the lawsuit, and all of those statements were ultimately submitted to the jury who did return a verdict of $2.1 million in actual damages to Hogan. Because the newly discovered statements were made more than a year earlier, they would have been outside the one-year statute of limitations unless they related back to the original allegations in the lawsuit. But the statute of limitations and the relation back doctrine and something called the discovery rule are all beyond the scope of this podcast episode. A divided appellate court decided to reverse and remand for new trial on the original statements only, holding that the nine newly discovered defamatory statements were improperly included in the jury instructions. One of the appellate judges dissented from that opinion and would have held that the abatement and loss of exemplary damages were the only remedies available for non-compliance with the DMA, and that dissenting judge would have also held that the plaintiff complied with the DMA with his original letter that complained of the defamation related to the nine newly added statements, reasoning that allowing the trial court to dismiss for these reasons would undermine the rationale for the DMA's existence, which is ostensibly to help defamed people mitigate or reduce the harm caused by defamation close in time to the occurrence of the alleged defamation. After the appellate court issued its decision, that was appealed to the Texas Supreme Court, which accepted the appeal and issued an opinion this month. So the outcome of the Texas Supreme Court's consideration of this case may be a little bit complicated by the way the justices voted, which I'll talk about in a minute, but the primary opinion is referred to as the plurality opinion. It's called the plurality opinion because four out of the nine justices signed on to it. It would take five justices for it to be considered a majority opinion. I'll get into more detail on the votes in a minute. The plurality opinion held that in the event of an insufficient DMA request for retraction or correction, the DMA allows for abatement, which is a temporary suspension, of a lawsuit and loss of exemplary, that is punitive, damages, and it doesn't allow for dismissal of the lawsuit in full, and this remedy, this abatement and loss of punitive damages is only available if the defendant invokes it. As a result of the Texas Supreme Court's opinion here, it appears that a defamed party can sue for defamation even in the absence of a DMA request. But in the absence of a DMA request, a defendant to the lawsuit might be able to put the lawsuit in timeout via abatement and will be able to limit damages to actual damages instead of risking exemplary damages for the defamation. Now I'm going to get into the vote by the Texas Supreme Court and the effect, a possible effect of the way the vote turned out. Keep in mind that because the way the law can change over time 
And because this Texas court opinion is a plurality opinion instead of a majority opinion, it's worth going into this detail on how the Hogan versus Zuani vote turned out. First note, there are a total of nine Texas Supreme Court justices. But in this case, only eight of them voted in this matter. One of the justices was not part of the vote. So it was eight justices voting. Four of those justices signed on to the primary opinion, which is why it's referred to as the plurality opinion instead of the majority opinion. An additional justice, a fifth justice, concurred in the result of the opinion, but disputed the reasoning of the opinion. So the result of the opinion is that the appellate court's decision needs to be reversed and the appellate court needs to consider the additional appellate issues which it failed to reach when it reached its opinion. This one concurring justice agrees with that. The appellate court does need to be reversed and consider the additional issues. Three justices signed on to a dissenting opinion, disagreeing with both the result and the reasoning of the plurality opinion. The effect of these votes is that the decision of the appellate court is reversed and that the specific issues that the appellate court did not reach are remanded for consideration by the appellate court. The practical effect of this opinion is that Hogan won the battle at the Texas Supreme Court and now heads back to the appellate court for additional battles. And it's worth remembering that this all relates back to a 2011 divorce and a 2014 lawsuit. The legal effect of this plurality opinion at the least is that there may not be a great deal of stability regarding the question of the effect of failing to send a DMA request for correction or retraction because if a similar matter is accepted for consideration by the Texas Supreme Court in the future, different facts could lead to a different outcome when all nine justices participate in the vote. And this is of special note in the event that the composition of the court changes. Just as an example, Justice Guzman, who signed on to the plurality opinion in this case, recently announced her resignation from the court in order to compete to be elected as the Texas Attorney General. So those four justices that signed on to this plurality opinion, one of them is already gone. And then one of the nine justices who didn't participate in this decision in any of the votes may participate in future votes on the same issue. It's also worth noting that some attorneys might seek to argue that because the plurality opinion was not a majority opinion, it should not be given any binding precedential weight in the trial courts and appellate courts later on in future cases. And even though most trial and appellate judges will probably ignore most arguments like this, in certain situations, these types of arguments might get traction. Also keep in mind that the concurring justices holding, that's the one justice who agreed with the outcome of the plurality opinion, even though he disagreed with the reasoning. His legal position, if it had been adopted, would have more closely aligned with the three dissenting justices. He would have held that the DMA requires dismissal of a lawsuit when a plaintiff files a lawsuit after sending a DMA request for correction and retraction that was either insufficient or outside the time limits of the DMA. And then the dissenting opinion, and that's the opinion that doesn't control because it didn't have enough votes in its favor, stated that failure to make a timely sufficient demand prevents the lawsuit from going forward at all and that it must be dismissed. On the other hand, the plurality opinion believes that adopting this rule, this dissenting opinion's rule, 
would undermine the DMA's stated purpose of facilitating the defamed party's ability to mitigate their damages caused by defamation close in time to the defamatory events instead of having to wait to the end of a trial and attempt to be made whole. The practical outcome of the dissenting opinion was the rule would be to turn the statute that's ostensibly aimed at protecting the defamed person into a law that unless the statutory requirements are carefully navigated actually protects defamers and cuts off any ability for the defamed to reduce their damages or be made whole. And just in conclusion, even though the current state of the law in Texas appears to be that failure to send a timely and sufficient DMA request to correct or retract does not risk dismissal of the plaintiff's lawsuit, based on the votes and the arguments of the justices and the changing makeup of the court, this legal situation appears to be on very shaky ground. The best course of action is still to ensure a timely and comprehensive DMA letter, remembering that the statutory deadlines can be very short, so it's important not to delay. For additional information on this, where you can find the opinions, both the plurality opinion, the dissenting opinion, and the concurring opinion, I'll also link to the appellate court's written opinion, and I'll also link to the YouTube video of the oral argument of the lawyers in the front of the Texas Supreme Court. You can find that on YouTube. I'll link to it in the show notes of this podcast episode. In the show notes, you can also find links to my website, the link to the blog post related to this podcast episode, and all the different ways you're able to contact me and ask questions. It's important for businesses to understand that in the face of false negative online reviews, they do have some avenues available to them under the laws to try to reverse those, to try to get retractions and corrections, and if that doesn't work, to decide whether to pursue a lawsuit for defamation, business disparagement, etc. But what's most important to understand, if any of those things are something the business might be interested in doing, they need to be very proactive about taking care of it early rather than late, because this Defamation Mitigation Act statute has very short deadlines. I hope this episode empowers you to feel knowledgeable about what may be available to you in, in terms of addressing false negative online reviews. Disclaimer, this audio is for informational purposes only and should not be misinterpreted as legal or other professional advice. If you have a legal question, you should consult with an attorney in your jurisdiction. This is Jason Keith thanking you for listening to the Keith Law PLLC podcast.